September 1958, I preached my first sermon as a pastor of a church. Now, uh, after a lot of years, and I look back over those times, and I can honestly say to you folks, if I could start life over again, I would want to be a pastor. It's a great, great privilege to serve God. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters if you do your best what you do. And God will bless you for it. And you'll be glad when you're old that God allowed you to do the work you did. This morning, I, I want to talk to you about the power of sin and the great struggle we Christians have with it. Now the Bible deals with it in different places in different ways. <clears throat> but in the book of Romans, in chapter 7, I didn't have to do this when I started. But in Romans 7, it deals uh, with the problem in a very thorough way. But there's a problem with Romans 7. And the problem is its complexity. Of all the chapters in the New Testament, that's probably the most difficult one of all. So what I'd like to do because of its difficulty and complexity, it can't possibly, at least I can't, uh, cover it thoroughly as it deserves. It would take many, many sermons. And so what I want to do is just lift out of that chapter some of the most important things it says about the power of sin and the struggle we Christians have with it. In verse 17 and again in verse 20, when I have them on, I can't see you. When I have them off, I can't read what I'm... But... The difficulty of the chapter uh, makes it difficult for me to cover it. And so I want to just take those verses that I think are most important out of it. And I mentioned verse 17 and again verse 20. And in those two verses, the Apostle Paul that God used to write a great Part of the New Testament. In that, those two verses, he talks about himself and he says an astounding thing. He was a great man of God, probably started more churches than any other Christian ever has, endured more suffering, was a greater theologian. No one compares to him in my mind. And yet in those two verses, he says that sin dwells in him. 
sin dwells in him. That's what the apostle said about himself. Many of us don't understand this about sin. We think of sin as something that comes to us or comes through us um, when some temptation occurs. And certainly, um, temptation does come that way. But sin is already in us. He used the word dwell. It dwells in him. That means it, that was its home. And sin has a home in my soul and your soul. We entered the world with it. We inherited it from our parents. And our parents inherited it from their parents. And it goes all the way back to that first sin in the Garden of Paradise when Eve and Adam committed their sin. And if you ever think that little sins don't matter, every hospital in the world, every grave, in the world, every bit of fear, every bit of hatred, every bit of anger, every bit of anguish, all of those terrible things have all grown out of that one sin. Our little sins do matter. And yet here we are with sin dwelling in our soul. Now, when the infant is born, it can't sin. It hasn't sinned. But in its nature, sin dwells. The apostle Paul said it dwells in him. It dwells in us. It's dreadful. And yet, most of us are pretty comfortable with it. So, when sin comes, it doesn't, sin doesn't make us, uh, it doesn't make us something that's not redeemable. So all of us have to face it, have to deal with it. We can't escape it. But there is a verse in Romans 7, verse 21, that I'd like you to read. All of us have received this sinful nature. It's our nature. And when sin comes along, or temptation comes along, it doesn't cause us to have sin for the first time. It just draws out of us what's already there. And in Romans 7, 21, the apostle says this. Now, he's already told us very clearly that sin dwells in him, and he means it dwells in us as well, of course. And he says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. And it's present with us. It's present even when we worship. It's present even when we pray. And of course, that often makes prayer very difficult. But what can we do about it? We can't do anything. We can't do anything. 
except by the exercise of the faculties of our soul. And here, indwelling sin lives. And it's present with us according to this verse 21. Paul found it in himself when he was doing good. Not when he was suddenly overcome by some temptation. He found it when he was doing good. It was there. And so when we use the various faculties of our soul, because sin is already there, it affects us. When we use the faculty of our mind and our understanding, that indwelling sin affects that understanding. It affects it with its spiritual darkness. Have you never noticed how difficult it is to understand spiritual things? Sometimes I have to read over and over and over a verse and struggle with the understanding. There is spiritual darkness that comes from that indwelling sin. Even when we haven't sinned, it affects us. It makes this darkness there and difficult to understand the things of God. If we use the faculty of our will, indwelling sin is there with its spiritual deadness. If our heart is set on something good that we want to do, oh, but that indwelling sin is there inclining us, drawing us to the things of the world with all of its defilements. Of course, not everyone believes that this sin dwells in their heart. And those that don't believe it, they don't believe it because they're spiritually dead. The scripture in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, tells us about people dead because of their trespasses and sins. It's not talking about physical death. It's not talking about intellectual death. It's not talking about emotional death. It's talking about spiritual death. Because of this indwelling sin that we've inherited from our parents, it's in the unbeliever and it's in the believer. And it's always working against our obedience to God and his gospel. Now there is an effect that spiritual death has on people. And it's terrible. In Ephesians chapter 2, which I just mentioned is where uh, it speaks about men dead in their trespasses and sins, it tells us the consequences of that. Unless they can somehow find a way to escape this spiritual deadness. If they remain in that condition, Ephesians 2, verse 12, tells us this. People without Christ, who alone can pay for our sins and save us, that if you do not have Christ as your Savior, the verse says we are without hope, and without God in the world, without hope, without God in the world. I can't imagine anything that would be worse than that. But the next thing I'd like you to see from the book of Romans 7 
is that not only does sin dwell in us, but the verse that I just read from uh, verse 21, you can see I'm having a difficult time here this morning, folks. I don't know why, but I'm just scared to death. But verse 21 tells us that this sin has not only in us, but it's in us when we do good. But it also tells us uh, that it has a characteristic of law. Look at verse 21 again. It says that he found a law in him. And that law refers back to indwelling sin. He gives it a different name here. And he gives it a different name because he wants us to understand the very great difficulty and power that sin has over people. It has the power of the law. And every law has with it two things. There is the promise of reward when you obey the law, and there is also the promise of punishment when you disobey the law. And now here, the apostle is telling us that this indwelling sin that's in our soul that we've inherited from our parents, which works against the gospel of God, it works against all our efforts to obey God and serve him. Here, it's like a law. That indwelling sin is like a law. And when we do what it says, sin, that's what it tells us to do, what it urges us to do. When we sin, there's a reward for it. And when we don't, there is a punishment for it. Now, I've done this in a very poor way this morning. I'm embarrassed with my inadequacy today. However, we've learned two very important things. That sin lives in our soul and it's always there, whether we're young or old, whether we're doing something wrong or something good. Sin is always present. Whatever we do, wherever we are, it's there. That doesn't mean we're sinning, but it's there urging us to, encouraging us to do. It's fighting against the things of God. And not only that, it not only dwells in us, but it's a law in us. And that law of sin that's in us will reward us if we sin. And it will punish us if we don't sin. Now, what is this reward for sinning? Well, the scripture tells us that there's a, the reward is the pleasures of sin for a season. The pleasures of sin. Sin has pleasure. But that pleasure is only for a brief time. And the punishment for not sinning is the gospel's effect in you. It makes you a different person. And that oftentimes ruptures close friendships. We've been a friend with someone for years we do things together, we talk together. We talk about the same things, we like the same things. But now, a man becomes a Christian. He obeys the gospel. 
and suddenly there's a difference between you and that old friend. Now he's no longer comfortable with you because you don't talk the same way. You don't want to talk about the same things. You don't want to do the same things. And so it, it ruptures that friendship. That's a punishment. You lose friends. Even worse, sometimes it separates you from people you love. It separates parents from children. It separates brothers and sisters from each other. It separates us from neighbors. And sometimes the punishment is even worse. It affects uh, our living, our job, our possibility of promotion. It affects us in so many different ways. And some, because of the gospel, because they won't do what indwelling sin urges us to do, they're imprisoned. And there's, on occasion, they lose their life. We saw that video this morning of a pastor in Belarus, which is a close ally of Russia in this war. They're suffering. We've already heard of a, a woman, a pastor's wife, that's imprisoned for the gospel's sake. Some have had to leave their country. We've been told about several of them that are now in Poland trying to establish churches because they don't have that freedom in Belarus. Sin is in us. It's working against the things of God, and it works against our best interests. This is the indwelling sin that the Apostle Paul said about himself. And it's sin that's working in us. Indwelling sin is powerful. And it's so powerful that it captures hundreds of thousands, really millions and millions of people. They choose, they, they choose sin because they are afraid they're going to lose the pleasures of life by not sinning. So they choose sin rather than righteousness. I'd like to, I, I've said some very hard things this morning and emphasized the great power of sin. But every Christian has a, a, another power that unbelievers don't have. And that power enables us to overcome the effects of indwelling sin on us. It enables us to live victorious in this world in spite of the strength of sin that captures so many. We have a power that's greater than all the power of sin that's in us, around us. And I'd like to go over just a few of them this morning. The first thing is that I, 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 want, to, I, I want to support this statement about the rewards and punishment for sin. Uh, it's not in the order that I wrote it. It's because I'm just so nervous 
Uh, I've never felt like this ever in my life when I preached. But there, I want you to see from the scripture that there is a reward that sin gives and a punishment that sin gives. So I'd like you, if you brought your Bible and you're still listening, and I hope you are, um, there's a passage in the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, that shows or gives an example of the reward for sin and the punishment for not sinning. Roman, or Hebrews 11, verse 25 and 26. It's talking about Moses in these verses, and it says about him, he chose rather, Moses did, to suffer afflictions with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he had rest he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. Here is a great man of God that was faced with a choice. The pleasures of sin for a season in Egypt. He was the stepfather, he was the stepson of Pharaoh. He lived in Pharaoh's palace. He ate and the best of food. He had the best clothing, the best opportunities. He had wonderful good things just because he was the stepson of Pharaoh. But what did he do? He chose to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than the pleasures of sin for a season. And this power of indwelling sin can be overcome in every believer's life. He can be triumphant over these <clears throat> very things. And there are several things the scripture tells us that can help us. Help us be victorious in life no matter what the circumstances. And the first is, if you're a Christian, if you have received Christ as your savior, then in you is not only indwelling sin, but the spirit of God himself. Whether you're a strong Christian or a weak Christian, whether you're a new Christian or an old Christian, whether you have failed as a Christian or whether you have been quite successful most of the time, but every Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in him. And I'd like you to see that in the scripture. So turn over in your Bible to Romans chapter 8 and look at verse 9. This is what it tells us. It's speaking to you, Christian, and it says this, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man has not the spirit of God, he is none of his. If you're a Christian, you have the spirit of God living in you. Now, you might say, well, I don't feel him. 
That doesn't mean he's not there. Did you feel yourself conceived? Did you feel yourself as you came out of your mother's womb into the world? Do you remember the things that occurred to you in the early days and months of your life here on earth? No. But God's word says, if you're in Christ, then Christ is in you. Throughout the New Testament, that is repeated, being in Christ and Christ being in us. Christ and the Holy Spirit are in you. And he is a greater power than all the power of indwelling sin. There's a second thing. If you have received Christ, not only does the Spirit of God dwell in you, but because he does, you also are a new creation. And to see that, turn in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Chapter 5, verse 17. This is what God's word tells us. By the way, the man that wrote this wrote about indwelling sin in Romans. But in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians 5, it says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation or new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What's new about the Christian? Jesus said you must be born again. The need for a new beginning. And here we're told that if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The moment you believed, the very instant you believed, you became a new creation. Something happened to you, something was done in you that did not exist a second before. Our conception is that way, our physical conception. And so is our spiritual conception. The moment we believe, we are a new creation. And what is new in us that did not exist before is that we have a spiritual birth. When God made man, he formed the body of man out of the earth, and then he breathed into him the breath of life. He became a living soul. And that body enabled the living soul to function in a physical world. But God also gave man, when he made him, a spirit. His soul had a body to function in a physical world, and God gave him a spirit because the scripture says God is a spirit, and those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. That faculty, that spirit, enabled man to, to communicate with God. Now, God told him that in the day he sinned, he would die. And when Adam sinned, he did die that very day. We have to remember that death is basically separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. And now men are born spiritually dead with indwelling sin in them, always 
pushing them, urging them, pulling them. I said pulling 12, maybe pulls on the left side and pulls on the right. But anyway, he pulls us, that old nature, to do what's wrong. But now God has given us a new nature. He's given us a spiritual nature in which the spirit of God himself dwells. And that power that comes from God is greater, far greater than all the power of sin that may be urging you to do what God does not want you to do. The new thing is you have a new nature. That new nature, born of the spirit, cannot sin. You say, well, I'm a Christian and I know I have trouble with sin and have sinned. Yes, you have, but that's your old nature. A man has two natures after spiritual birth. An old nature that can never be tamed. It can never be made righteous. It is always going to be sinful. But God gives us a new nature. And that new nature enables us to obey God and to do what we should. Let me give you a verse to support that. Turn in your Bible to the book of Galatians. That's also chapter 5 that I want you to see. Galatians 5, and again, it's verse 17. This is what it says. Again, the writer of this book is also the Apostle Paul. And he says here in verse 17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit. By flesh, it's referring to our entire old nature, not just your body, but the entire old nature. That old nature, lust or works, draws against the things of God. It fights the new nature that God gave you by spiritual birth. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. We can do right things, but we know we haven't done them perfectly, have we? Sometimes we do a very good thing, but we do it with secret motives that are not so good. So, when we receive Christ, we actually become a new person with something that did not exist the second before. You're a new, you have a new nature. Now, physical birth, you enter the world as an infant. You have to be cared for. Spiritual birth, you're also a spiritual infant. And it takes time to grow and develop. And when you're real old, you're just aware of all that you need to do a little bit more than you did before. But we have this advantage over all other people. You know, the non-Christians can sometimes want to stop doing something that's wrong, but they don't have a new nature or the spirit of God in them. So what they're working with is simply the light of their conscience. And conscience, I hope you listen to me now, conscience is conditioned by our culture. When I was a very young man, um, homosexuals 
did what they did secretly. They wanted it hidden because the world, the culture, thought it was wrong, condemned it. Abortion was illegal. But today, uh, homosexuals celebrate their sexual activities. And today, uh, hundreds of thousands of women are walking in public in great crowds demanding the right to destroy their own child in their womb. What, what, what's brought about this change? Culture. Culture has affected it. This is not part of the sermon, but everybody talks about gun control. It's really not guns. It's the culture that causes all of this. Mass killings. Think about it. Video, games, movies, books. They're all filled with violence, aren't they? Constant killings. That affects culture. It affects how people react. The world doesn't have a spiritual birth. It doesn't have the spirit of God in them. And so there, the culture is gradually conditioned and changed. And what was wrong is now right. And what was right is now wrong. But we have a new nature. And the spirit of God is living in us. In addition, in addition, we have a promise from the Lord himself in John chapter 1, verse 12, where we're told if as many as receive Christ to them, he gives the power to become a son of God, a child of God. You have the right, the authority to be a Christian. God gave it to you when you received Christ. When you became a new creation and the spirit of God came in, you became different, far different than you ever were before. And in addition to having the spirit of God, a new nature, and the authority to be a son of God, He's also promised you in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that all of the temptations that come to you are not too great for you to withstand. There hath no temptation taken you, the word of God tells us, but such as is common to man. But God will not allow you to be tempted above what you can stand, but will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape. Think about it. A new nature, the spirit of God, the authority to be a child of God, and that God has given you a promise that though a temptation may come to you that's very strong, it will not be too strong. Now, I've really come to the end of the sermon. And you, in your mind, are thinking that your life is a mess. You feel you're dirty. You don't know how to get out of it, the mess you're in, the dirt you're in. 
I, I, I don't know all the things they're going through in your mind, but they're, they're thoughts of condemnation. They're thoughts that maybe you're not really a Christian after all. I want to tell you one more thing. And what I'm saying to you is a promise from the God that cannot lie. He has promised you through the Apostle John in his first epistle, not the gospel, the first epistle of John in chapter 1. In verse 9, he says this, if we will confess our sins, he would be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You say, you don't know what I've done or the mess I'm in or how many times I've confessed in the past. I don't care how many times you have or how much you've failed or what kind of mess you're in. I'm telling you, you can be clean again. You can be forgiven again. God will make you whole. God will use you. You think not me. Yes, he will. He'll cleanse you. He'll forgive you. He'll strengthen you. And he will use you. I don't know how. But he will use you. All you have to do, I say all, Sometimes this simple little thing is so hard to do. But if you have to pull it out of your mouth with all your might, just word by word, do it. And God will honor you for it. He will do in you what he may never have done before. But he will cleanse you, he will forgive you, and he will use you. I don't care if how poorly you think of yourself. God uses simple things. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I don't want to just preach some words to you. I want you to be helped by God. And he will help you. Shall we pray? Would you just bow your head for a minute? Let me pray. Father in heaven, I ask thee in Jesus' name,
to do what no man can do for those sinners, those Christians that are just defeated and, and they don't know what to do. Would you give them grace to repent, to tell to you, to you, their sins. Help them to be in detail and tell you. And would you, by your spirit, wash over them, forgive them and cleanse them? Because your son Jesus died for them. Now, with everybody still having their heads bowed, if you've never been a Christian, you've never received Christ, if you would like to belong to Christ and have a new nature and the Spirit of God in you, if you would like him to guide you and help you for the rest of your life, while no one's looking, would you just lift your hand so I could see it for a minute? I won't embarrass you. I promise you, I will not embarrass you. But if you would like to begin the Christian life, would you raise the hand, whether you're in the balcony or here on the ground floor, just for a moment till I see it, and then put it down again? Yes. And if you really need to rededicate your life, Would you raise your hand for a minute? Our Father, thank you for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.